The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Father, we quiet ourselves before you tonight, just even as a sign, Lord, that we're ready to shut out every voice that so easily distracts us from hearing yours. God, our minds are spinning with all of the things from our day, our work day, all of the stresses that we took on today, all the stresses that we are thinking through for tomorrow. Lord, we have anxiety. Lord, we have depression. We have distractions. Some of us are physically not feeling good. So, Father, we need your Holy Spirit to come into this room tonight to awaken the deepest parts of our hearts to hear from you, Lord. So God, we just, we invite you tonight to teach us to be our rabbi. Lord, we wanna sit at your feet and and glean and gain your wisdom, God. So would you inspire this story of Esther, God? May it be a treasure to us, something that always reminds us of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah? Okay. I feel like a little quiet. Um, so Esther chapter 2 and 3, like I said, we're going to take a big chunk tonight. I uh, was supposed to do like two chapters a, a, a week, and I, and I didn't do that last week. I just did one, so now i got to catch up. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Um, a couple things about Esther. If you guys weren't here last week, um, raise your hand if you weren't here last week. Okay, a few guys, so I might need to do a little bit of, um, of recap. If you weren't here last week, I might recommend going back and listening to the first weeks just because I did a lot of intro last week, a lot of background, and there's a lot of history in the book of Esther. It's kind of important to understand, and we'll unpack some of it as we go, but it might be helpful to go back and listen to that. A few things about the book that you just need to keep in mind as we study through it, okay? The the first thing is, this is extremely important, you might even write this down because this is really kind of the the whole point of tonight's teaching, and and that is that that there is no good people in the Bible, okay? Everybody got that? There are no good people in the Bible. There's bad people and there's Jesus, okay? There's bad people in the Bible and there's Jesus. So if we can just get that out there right away, it's going to be a whole lot easier to understand this book uh, in the long run. The second thing we have to understand about Esther is that if this book was rated, it would be rated R, okay? I said this last week, it's a rated R book. It just straight up is. You would think the Bible would be rated G because it's the Bible, but actually some of the books are, are probably rated R for sensuality, for gore, for violence, uh, all kinds of things like that. This is a real book with real raw history of things that really happened by some bad people in the Bible because the Bible isn't just about good people. In fact, it's not about good people, right? Uh, It's about bad people and then it's about Jesus who's the only good person that ever lived and ever existed. So just keeping that in mind. Also keep in mind this is a real story, okay, with real people, real historical figures. A lot of these people we actually get accounts of in other places historically, like Xerxes, like we learned about last week. Um, So that's just a few kind of precursors to uh, tonight's teaching. A little bit of review. Last week we looked at the first character in our book. There's four primary characters in our book that are mentioned all throughout the story. The first one was, if you guys remember, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, uh, depending. Xerxes was his Greek name, Ahasuerus being his Persian name. Um, And Xerxes was the king of the Persian Empire during the time of our story. His father was named Darius. You might remember Darius from the book of Daniel. And King Xerxes is, hands down, bar none, the most powerful, the most influential, uh, powerful man in the ancient world. He literally ruled, basically, the ancient world. Persia was the largest kingdom that had ever existed in history in that time, and Xerxes rules it all. So he's got unbridled power. Um, He can essentially do whatever he wants. He's at the very top of the food chain in a very large army. Just so you guys know for sort of a time frame here, if you guys are just joining us this week, uh, this is about 600 years before Christ. Okay, so 600 years before Christ. If you were with us at all for the book of Nehemiah, this actually precedes Nehemiah. It's, It's just a little bit before Nehemiah, but about the same time as the book of Nehemiah. So anyways, last week we learned about Xerxes. Uh, We learned that he's the most powerful man in the ancient world. We also learned that he thought he was a god, 
Okay, if you remember that, we talked about the God complex and how essentially Xerxes was the ultimate example of how each of us struggle with a God complex, that we all want to be the God of our own life, that we all want to rule our own life, essentially. That's kind of what we talked about last week. We saw in chapter one that he threw a six-month open bar party for all of the people of any kind of importance in the Persian Empire. If you remember that, for six months they partied. And the whole point of that was so he could show off basically all of his power, all of his prestige, all of his pomp uh, to all of the people that seemed important and mattered. We saw him uh, at some point during this drunken party with all of his drunken friends decide that he wanted to show off his trophy wife. So he calls and sends his eunuchs to go get his trophy wife and tell her to come sort of parade herself and let them see her. She says no. She says not going to happen, not going to do it. Undignified, turns him down, rejects him. He throws a royal tissy fit because he has a God complex, right? Gets super upset, goes to his counselor, says, what do we do with my wife? She disobeyed me. She said she's not going to come show off herself to all my drunken friends. How dare she? Um, And they say, oh, we got to nip this in the bud because if she does that, then our wives are going to be unsubmissive and then it's going to be one big unsubmissive wife party. No one's going to want to go to, so you got to nip this thing in the bud. So what does Xerxes do with all of his power, with all of his prestige? He says, okay, my wife's done. Takes away all of her power, takes away all of her money, all of her comfort, divorces her, sends her off with nothing simply because she hurt his pride and rejected him. We looked at that story last week, and we use that as sort of an example of how Jesus is the better king and how we each have a God complex, and we need Jesus to replace that God complex. So that was last week. This week, we're gonna, re- we're gonna meet the rest of the cast, okay? The last uh, three members of the sort of the four main people in this story. Um, it's kind of exciting. We're just gonna kind of take them as they come, get to know them as they come. So if you got your Bibles, Esther chapter two, let's dig right in. Um, just a warning. Like I said, we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. So uh, hopefully you got your Bibles out and pens ready, and we're just going to try to really learn and understand and, and kind of paint the picture of who these characters are tonight and lay the framework for, some, for the next couple teachings to come. Verse 1, chapter 2. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. Vashti is the wife that he divorced, okay? That was the wife that didn't want to come, show off herself before the drunken men, and she rejected him. So that's his wife, if you remember from chapter one, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So it's been a few years, and finally King Xerxes has calmed down a little bit, okay? Now, just so you know, historically, um, studied a lot of this a little bit today, like, Xerxes was known for being a hothead. I mean, he just did the dumbest, like, ridiculous temper tantrums that you could ever see. Um, Just stupid things. And so it took him, like, a matter of years, literally, to sort of revisit this thing that he did, sending his wife Vashti away, divorcing her. So finally, after quite a bit of time, he, he revisits it, he thinks about it, he remembers it, and some stuff has happened, some history has happened since that time. It's important that we kind of understand that. If you guys are familiar with the story of the 300 uh, Spartans, that took place sort of after he divorced his wife Vashti. Okay, so his pride is hurt a little bit. If you're not familiar with that story, uh, his father, King Darius, had tried to conquer, had tried to take out the Greeks at some point and was not able to. So Xerxes wants to succeed his father, wants to uh, do what his father couldn't, so he decides and takes a massive army to go out to conquer the Greeks. And as you, if you guys know the story, when he goes out to conquer them, he's not able to. They lure them into a canyon where their numbers don't count for anything. 300 of these Spartans stop them and, and, and cost a huge toll to the, uh, to, to the Persian army to the point that literally Xerxes has to go home with his tail between his legs, not able to conquer them, and eventually that would sort of turn the direction where Greece would actually end up taking over Persia by Alexander the Great, which is just cool history to study. That happened after he divorces his wife, so he's having a rough time, okay? His ego is hurting. He doesn't have his wife anymore because he was a bonehead, and then he lost to Greece, and now he's just kind of bummed, okay? He's revisiting this whole, this whole thing that he did with his ex-wife now. He's sort of regretting it. He just lost a war to the Greeks. He's not feeling uh, as powerful as maybe he did before. He's feeling a little defeated. Verse 2, Then the king's young men, you might underline young men, who attend him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Okay, first mistake. Again, I'm a young man, so I can say this. Don't go to young men, especially young single men, for marriage advice. 
Bad idea, okay? Bad idea. I, I had a, a buddy that's like a little brother to me, and he was like, hey, one of my single buddies gave me some advice about, about my future marriage, and he told me the advice, and I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Do not listen to single guys, and do not listen to young single guys when it comes to this kind of stuff. So you would think Xerxes, the king of the ancient world, would be able to go to someone a little more wise, but he goes to the young men, which is kind of funny. And shocker, okay, shocker, the young men say, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you go get all of the young virgins and bring them all into your harem, and there you go. You'll find your wife out of there. Of course, that's what they're going to say, right? Makes total sense. Bad counsel. Be careful of dumb and bad counselors. Verse 3. Here's what they say. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces, provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa in the citadel under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the woman. Okay, everyone understands what a eunuch is, right? I don't need to explain that. We're all, okay, good. No one raised their hand, so I might have to explain that. Uh, <laughs> uh, let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Of course it did. So, essentially... Uh, they're saying, why don't you assign governors over all of the provinces? Now remember, Persia is a huge empire. So they have absorbed and conquered and taken over tons of countries and tons of people groups and tons of nations, such as Israel. And you see, why don't you put governors in all of these places, get the most beautiful young virgins, bring them all into your harem, sleep with them, decide which one pleases you the most, that one will be your queen. This is their idea, this is their counsel. Uh, what brilliant counsel. This is stupid counsel for three reasons, okay? Stupid counsel for three reasons. Number one, it's completely carnal. <laughs> it's completely carnal, uh, the idea that, that that's how you would choose your queen. The funny thing about this is there's a TV show that's in our culture that is the exact same thing. It's called The Bachelor. You guys ever heard of it? Yeah, seriously. I mean, it's the exact same thing. Okay, let's take this guy, and we'll get all these girls that want the same guy, and they can hang out in his house, and he can sleep with all of them and do whatever he wants, and then at the end, he'll decide which one gets the privilege of getting to marry him, and the marriage is always last, obviously, you know, at the end. Um, it's the same exact thing. This is basically one ap big episode of The Bachelor, but like to a huge degree. We're talking like hundreds of women uh, instead of however many are on this show. I don't watch it. Um, so that's basically what's going on. It's completely carnal. It's horrible advice. Um, and honestly, not only is that like the bachelor, this is kind of exactly what our Western secular dating system looks like, isn't it? You sleep with as many people as you want while you're single, try everyone out in every possible way, see which one you like the most, and then you get married. It's the same exact thing. So really what Xerxes doing is doing is exactly what people do in our Western culture and as far as secularism go. It's just to sleep with anybody and everybody that you want to as long as you want to. And then when you decide you find the right one that pleases you enough, then marry that one. Okay, Xerxes is really not doing anything new here. He's just using all of his power to do exactly what people do in our culture anyways. The second reason this is dumb advice is that there's no repentance, there's no humility, there's no reconciliation, reconciliation with his wife with Vashti, okay? The, the reason it's dumb advice is because they're not saying, look, Xerxes, you know, it was a dumb move what you did with your wife. Why don't you go ask for forgiveness, see if she'll take you back? It's like, no, just get another one. You screwed that one up, just go, do, just go get a new one. Get a fresh one, you know, start over. And that always works really well, right? No, it doesn't. It's horrible advice because there's no healing, there's no reconciliation, there's no humility. Mark Triscoll, he says it really well. He says, he says you can either choose sin or you can choose to keep your wife. That's essentially what it is. You can either choose sin or you can choose to keep your wife. Any of you guys have been married, you know that that's true. There's points where you have to make decisions to either choose your spouse or to choose the thing that keeps you from your spouse. And you have to make those decisions every day, every week, every month, every year. And King Xerxes decides, nah, I'll just start over. I'll just start over. The problem with that is it never fixes your problems. Your problems are still there. You just bring them into the next relationship. Some statistics. Okay, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Okay, that's across the board. That's Christian, non-Christian, 50%, which is a bummer, right? Well, 70% of second marriages end in divorce. That jumps up quite a bit. Third, the, the third marriages, it goes all the way up to like the 90%. Okay, what that tells you is that the more you get married, the less you have the chance 
of that working. Now, God works miracles and restores, and I've seen Christian couples that have gotten remarried that have beautiful and wonderful marriages. I'm not talking about that. But the, the principle here, the, the principle that I'm just simply saying is that what, that what queen, uh, queen, ha, King Xerxes is doing is foolish. Okay, he didn't try to fix anything with his, his ex-wife. He acted so pig-headedly towards her, and he says, I'll just go get another one. That's not gonna work. It doesn't work like that. Thirdly, it's his dumb advice because it's not gonna fix his problem. It's not gonna fix his problem. Okay, getting a wife is not gonna fix his issues. And he feels kinda down, he feels a little depleted, he lost a war, he misses the, 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 his, having a queen, and, and so the first thing he thinks is, well, I'll just get another one. Well, that's not gonna fix his loneliness. How many of you guys know that? That as beautiful as marriage is, and I'm so much happier married than I was single, you guys all know that are married that it's not, doesn't fix all your problems. In fact, depending on who you marry, it can compound them sometimes, right? It can make things harder. And so the foolish thing is that these young guys are telling him, just go get another wife and all your problems will be fixed. It's just really not true. Um, He's just going to be as empty as he was before. So just dumb advice, okay? Dumb advice. Let's move on. Verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, Mordecai is our next character we're going to meet. Verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So let's meet Mordecai. Okay, Mordecai's a big part of this story. He's actually mentioned 52 times in the book of Esther. Okay, so he's, he's a big deal. We need to meet him. We need to understand him a little bit, understand his background a little bit. First of all, he's a real guy. Okay, he really lived. He was buried in Iraq. Uh, this, the, 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 this would have been modern-day Iraq, essentially, where he was. Um, Mordecai was an exilic Jew. Okay, and I've explained this almost every week, but it's important to get. He's an exilic Jew. What that means is that he is a Jew that lived during the time of the exile. That means that when God's people uh, were taken out of God's land and spread and scattered all over the ancient world uh, by Babylon and by Persia, that was the period of time that he lived in. So it says that he lived in Jerusalem, so he at one point lived in Zion, in God's home city. He was pulled out of Zion, taken away, and now he lives in Susa in Persia. Now, it's interesting too, if you look at the timeline of history, where Mordecai actually lives. He is after, technically, after the exile was over, which means that under King Cyrus, there was a decree that said Jews could now go back to the homeland, kind of like what happened in 1948, right? Jews were able to go back to, I think I got that date right, uh, were able to go back to the homeland. Essentially, the same thing happened with that, okay? Essentially, the same thing happened with that, that God said, in 70 years, you'll be able to go back to your homeland, and that's exactly what happened. Well, the problem is that Mordecai didn't. He stayed, And we don't know exactly why he did it, but we know that he should have gone because God said to. God said after 70 years, you're going to be back in your homeland. The reality is a lot of the Jews didn't. A remnant of them went back, and that's where we get books like Ezra and Nehemiah where they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls. But a lot of Jews didn't go back to Israel. Why? Because it was hard. If you look at the books of Nehemiah, which we just studied, and Ezra, like they went through some stuff to rebuild those walls. I mean, they had enemies. They had to try to rebuild from rubble, basically, their city. And Mordecai is actually comfortable living in Susa, living in Persia. He's comfortable. As we'll see, he's a man of somewhat importance. He's got some kind of a business that he does well in. He's got some kind of a position of authority. So why would he want to give that up to go back to Jerusalem? But if you read the Old Testament, you understand that Jerusalem and the temple represents the presence of God. So really, Mordecai is a guy that is basically separated from the presence of God. He's basically uh, in a point in his life where he's not close to God. He's separated, distant from God. He's not being obedient. He's not going back to Jerusalem like he probably should be, and he should have. So this shows that he's sort of rebellious towards God. He's sort of compromised. He's worldly, and we get that from more things, as you'll see. Uh, His faith is super private. Okay, there's no mention of anything in the book of Esther about his faith, about his prayer life, about uh, him uh, choosing any kind of even moral decisions based off of his faith. There's nothing like that. It's all basically just, uh, just life. Okay, so he's kind of a secular guy. He's a Jew living in a pagan Gentile world that almost has like a secret faith that nobody really knows about. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. 
The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So let's meet Esther. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay, this is sort of the star of our story. Okay, Esther, also known as Hadassah. Okay, Hadassah being her Jewish name, Esther being her Persian name. It's really common, if you guys know, like from the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, it was common when people were exiled to have two names. They had their name from their home, uh, where they were from, and they had their name from where they were exiled to. So what do we know about Esther? We know that she is the younger cousin of Mordecai, okay? Uh, Quite a bit younger, I'm assuming. Uh, We know that she's sort of an orphan. Her parents died when she was young. And because of that, Mordecai has basically become like her adopted father, which is rad, okay? He's kind of taken her as his daughter. We know she's a Jew, okay? Uh, But most likely, just kind of judging by Mordecai and and even just the lack of any mention of any kind of religion, uh, we're kind of guessing that she was not really raised to be a Jew per se. She had this lineage of being a Jew, but maybe wasn't really raised with the Torah, wasn't raised with the feasts, wasn't raised hearing about the stories of the Torah, of the Bible. Uh, she was most likely a teenager. She was young. She's a young woman. Um, it says she's very beautiful. Um, she basically has two identities, okay? She's kind of got two identities. She's Hadassah in one sense. She's Technically, this Jewish girl uh, that, that comes from a Jewish people that are all about being set apart, that are called by God to be holy, called by God to, to, to be for a purpose, but yet she's living in this pagan land. She doesn't really tell anybody that she's a Jew, as we'll see. She kind of keeps that secret. It's like a hidden identity. So she's essentially two people. She's Esther, but she's also Hadassah at the same time. Okay, I, I don't know about you guys, but that rings a bell for me, big time. <laughs> Big time. Before I was a Christian, man, I was two people. I was like church kid. I was like who my parents thought I was and who everyone at church thought I was. I mean, no one ever even thought to ask me if I was a Christian when I was a kid, right? Everyone just assumed I was. And then I was someone completely different when I wanted to turn it on and turn it off. I was two people, and a lot of people live like that. Uh, a lot of people in church live like that. They're two completely different people. They have this sort of identity that they enjoy when they're with Christians, and then they have another identity that they enjoy when they're with non-Christians. So that's basically how we meet Esther. That's kind of who she is at the beginning of this story. And we'll see her change and transform. It's kind of cool to watch. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So Esther is snatched up and taken to the harem, okay? The harem, I don't need to explain too much. It's basically a a, a large gathering of, of concubines, women that were solely there to basically sleep with the king whenever he wanted, however he wanted. They lived in the palace. That's what they did. Now, we don't know necessarily if these women um, wanted to be there or not. My guess would be this. Half of them, maybe not half, maybe a few of them didn't want to be there. Maybe they were there against their, their wishes, um, but King Xerxes can do whatever he wants. Um, the other half of them, and probably most of them, wanted to be there. Why? Because you got to realize, this is like, this is a long time ago, okay? People are starving, people are poor, people are hungry, and to be in the harem means that you're essentially living a life that's comfortable. You're in the king's palace. You get the king's food. You get the king's comfort. You enjoy the king's riches. So even though you're one of hundreds of women that are simply there for the king, essentially you, you live in complete comfort. So I think a lot of them probably wanted to be there because it meant a plush life. But it also meant that you were basically a sexual object for the king, that you were there uh, simply for one night or whatever it ends up being. Uh, You could possibly see the the king only once in your entire time and then live there for the rest of your life, basically. So your entire life could be centered around one night, and you could seem to have no really hope or anything to look for in the future, but at least you were comfortable. Okay, so some of the women probably would enjoy that. You'd have no voice, no options, no way out, just comfort and some semblance of security. Um, you could probably kind of imagine some of the drama that would take place in a harem, okay? Hundreds and hundreds of women living together in the palace forever. Uh, it'd probably be like hair school or something, you know? Like, it'd probably just be crazy uh, drama. Um, so uh, I had, a, I had a, a guy that I knew that went to hair school, and man, the stories he would say, uh, he's like... Um, So Esther's basically given a number, and she's like, okay, here's your number. You will sleep with the king at some point. Just wait. It's going to take, they take basically a year 
as we'll see, to prepare themselves with perfumes. I don't know how you can prepare yourself with perfumes for a year, um, but girls love cosmetics, so whatever. You know, for a whole year, basically, they, they, they prepare themselves. Verse 9, the young, women, the young woman pleased Esther, pleased him, and won his favor. He quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Okay, so he notices her, he likes her, he advances her to a very comfortable place in the palace. Verse 11, and every day, Mordecai, okay, remember her adopted father, her cousin, walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, it's interesting to me, Mordecai, in this position, in this situation, he didn't really do anything to try to stop them taking his adopted daughter, but he, he is still, like, interested in, in, in her. I mean, he's still worried about her. He's, like, walking past the court trying to maybe say, oh, is she okay? How's she doing? I mean, he's there every day. He's still sort of a concerned father, but he's not really trying to do anything necessarily to stop. I don't know how much he could have done, but he's still involved. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the woman, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices, ointments for women, that's the same. Um, so after a whole entire year, her night has finally come. Now you can imagine this waiting process, okay? This waiting process where she knows this night's coming and this night is going to determine essentially uh, the rest of her life. If the king doesn't like her, she'll just continue to be in the harem. She'll probably never see the king again. And she just kind of lives there with a pointless, somewhat pointless, but comfortable life. If the king likes her, she could become his queen. That could change the entire course of her life. So there's probably a lot of anticipation going on. What's he going to be like? What's it going to be like? Etc. Etc. Verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, okay, we all know what that means. I don't need to explain that, okay? Uh, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the, king, harem to the king's place. It's kind of vague what they're talking about there, but um, as far as we understand, uh, the commentaries kind of agree that it's talking about clothing and jewelry, that when they would go for their night with the king, uh, they, would, they would get to choose from like different clothing, different jewelry, different things to adorn themselves, and most likely get to keep it as sort of uh, a payment, uh, if you will, uh, at the end of the night. So she... Uh, picks out different things to try to dress up for the king, verse 14. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, a killer name, uh, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So this is how Xerxes treats women, okay? Uh, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to have dinner with them. I don't want to get to know them. I don't want to ask them about their life. Just bring them in at night and get them out in the morning before I wake up because I don't want to see them. I don't want to think about them, okay? This is how Xerxes treats women, much like a lot of guys do today. Um, verse 15, when the turn came for Esther the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, in case you forgot who she was, um, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Haggai, the eunuch, he's, he sees her and, and he has favor towards her and he, he gives her some tips, he gives her some pointers, what she should wear, what she should take. Uh, take in. She goes in. She has her night with the king. Um, verse 16, when Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther. Now, I, I'm gonna, like, can we talk about that? <laughs> okay, I don't think the king loved Esther. Can we just, can we agree on that? Uh, the king lusted Esther. Okay, whatever. But he didn't love Esther. That just, maybe that's a bad translation there. Maybe whoever wrote Esther was confused. Uh, but the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. She's now the new queen of basically the entire world. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast he also granted a remission of taxes, people always love that, to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So understand something here, okay? Understand something. Esther, as a Jewish girl, is entering into something that is detrimental religiously, okay? 
if you look at Torah and you look at the Jewish scriptures, first of all, you were not ever under any circumstances to marry an uncircumcised Gentile, okay? Just we're not supposed to. Especially the uncircumcised pagan Gentile that rules basically the pagan uncircumcised Gentile world. I mean, she marries like the worst possible guy a Jewish girl could meet and the most powerful guy that a Jewish girl could meet. Okay? Um, he basically chooses her based off of one thing, and that's how she performs in the bedroom, which is really sad. Okay? This entire marriage, uh, I'm sorry, but there's like commentaries and movies that have tried to make this really romantic, and, and oh, it's so sweet, and, and the night with the king. It's just not true. Okay? This guy was a pig. He slept with hundreds of women. She, he liked her the most, so he married her. He's a pig. Okay? Um, I hope he's saved. I hope he's in heaven. Um, but seriously, okay? The Bible has bad people in it. Um, it's not some romantic thing. It's not some sweet thing. Oh, he loved her. No, he didn't love her, okay? Um, maybe, maybe things changed down the road or whatever, but essentially the relationship had a bad start. Um, now, we really don't know how Esther felt about all this. That's the funny thing about this book is it doesn't say anything about how she feels. It doesn't say whether she's happy about this, whether she's sad about this. Uh, she could have hated the situation. She could have been dreading it. She could have been like, I don't, I don't want to be here. I sort of doubt that because she seemed like she tried pretty hard to please the king. She seemed like she, she sort of like put on her best and, and did some research. You know what I mean? Um, she could be questioning God. Why would God allow this? I sort of doubt that too. Uh, more likely, she could be loving the prestige and the attention and the sensuality involved in this situation would be my guess. Okay, she's probably, probably enjoying it. She's the queen of the world now. Okay, she's just pleased the most powerful man in the world. He thinks she's beautiful. He thinks she's awesome. Uh, they're going to get married. Um, and she may have even had affection for him. We really don't know. Verse 19, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now the king's gate when you think of that, think courtroom, okay? Think about courtroom because everything that happened of any political importance, transactions, business deals, all those things happened in the king's gate. That's essentially where stuff would happen. It was kind of like the center, the epicenter of everything that was going on of importance in a city. Verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or to her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. So she still hasn't told anyone she's a Jew. She's still living this double life, okay? She still has not revealed anything because Mordecai told her not to. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. She's, he's basically her dad. Verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Terash, that's Bigfoot's brother, in case you were wondering, uh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So why would the king have eunuchs? Because he had lots of harem and lots of concubines, and he didn't want his closest men fooling around or falling in love with his concubines. So he would castrate them, okay, uh, and they would be like his closest guys. Pretty gnarly, but it's kind of what happened in history, okay? It's just what happened. Now, these two eunuchs want to kill king, the king. I can't imagine why. Maybe because he made him eunuchs. I don't know. I would be pretty mad, um, honestly. So they conspire to kill Ahasuerus, Xerxes. In verse 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. Now somehow, while Mordecai is doing transactions and business deals in the gate, he finds out and catches wind that these two eunuchs are planning on uh, assassinating and killing the king, Xerxes. So Mordecai tells Queen Esther, his daughter, because she's now the queen, right? She's got the king's ear. And Esther told the king in the, in the name of Mordecai. Verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So, Mordecai surprisingly decides to help Xerxes, which is interesting to me that he would do that, but he decides to help a bad guy out and to do a good thing for him. Interestingly enough, Xerxes never says a thing to him. Never thanks him, never promotes him. We know Xerxes knew about it. He never does anything to benefit Mordecai at all. Uh, in fact, things get pretty bad for Mordecai, as we'll see. So look at chapter 3. After these things, you guys with me? Everybody okay? We're good? I know this is a lot of text to get through, um, but it's a good story. After these things, King Ahasuerus, verse 1, promoted Haman the Agite. Okay, this is our fourth character. Everyone say Haman. The Agagite. 
That's a fun one to say, right? Agagite. Uh, Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Let's meet Haman. Okay, Haman is essentially promoted to be like the right-hand man to the king of the world, okay? To Xerxes, to uh, this God-man. He says, I'm gonna give you a throne, I'm gonna give you all power, you're just under me, that's it. So he gives this guy like ultimate power over all of his rulers and all these kinds of things. Now Haman comes from the Agagites, okay? Now the Agagites are the mortal enemies of the Jews. You have to understand that, okay? When the Jews first settled in their land of Israel, the Agagites were the first ones there to give them a hard time, to, to, to go to war with them, to, to give them grief, okay? So there's this long-standing feud, battle between the people that Haman comes from, the Agagites, and the Jews. And Mordecai knows this because he's from Jerusalem. And now, one of his mortal enemies is in charge of him. Now, he has to answer to him. He has to bow to him, essentially. Verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. He crosses his arms and says, not going to happen, dude. I'm not bowing to you. Never. Verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, why wouldn't Mordecai bow? Why wouldn't he bow? We don't really know. It doesn't say exactly. Um, there's a few things that people, people think. They think maybe because it was a religious thing, like he didn't want to bow sort of like a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thing where they get tossed in the fire because they wouldn't bow to the image. Um, some people think he didn't want to bow because, because it was a religious kind of a deal. I, I think that's unlikely. Because Mordecai, up to this point, hasn't done anything for any religious reason at all, okay? Uh, and secondly, it's not a bow like I worship you. It's just a bow of respect, like you're the boss, dude, okay? You're, you're who I answer to. That's all it simply is. And he refuses to do it. Um, it could have been that he was jealous of Mordecai, which is kind of likely, uh, because Mordecai just saved the king's life, didn't get anything for it, and then all of a sudden his mortal enemy, Haman, gets raised to, to this high position, okay, could have been jealous, but most likely he didn't bow because of the history between the Jews and the Agagites, because he absolutely hated him for who he was and from where he came from. So it's sort of a pride thing maybe, um, but he decides not to do it. Okay, we're going to look at one last chunk of scripture, and then I want to zoom out with you guys and kind of see what all this is for, what all this means. So uh, verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him. Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan in the twelfth year of the king, Ahasuerus, they cast pur, which is lots, before Haman day after day. They cast it month after month. So the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So Haman is ticked off that Mordecai is not going to bow to him, so he takes it a step further. Not only am I going to get Mordecai, I'm going to get every single Jew. All of them. All of them. I want all of them dead. He goes to the king. He says, hey, these guys are unruly. These guys are problems. These guys are issues. Let's get them all. Verse 9. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. All of them. I will pay. He says, I'll even foot the bill. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. He says, not only do I want him dead, he says, I'll pay to do it. He wants it that bad. He'll stop at nothing to destroy these people. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, that's a symbol of all of his power, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with it them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own scripts and every people in its own language. It was written in the, king, in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old and women and children in one day. Okay? Did you catch that? This is intense. This would be like if our vice president went to the president and he was upset at uh, some Latino guy and he said, you know what? We just need to destroy all people from Mexico and let's do it all in one day. And so you put a thing out to all of the governors and all of the state provinces, you know what? We're gonna destroy every Mexican in their entire country. That sounds ridiculous. That's exactly what's happening. And one day, and not just the men, the women and the children. And Xerxes, the awesome guy that he is, says, sure, why not? If you're gonna pay for it, go for it. He's down. Kill them all. What do I care, Xerxes says. Verse 14, a copy of that document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Can you imagine catching wind of that? Oh, we're all dead in one day. It's over for us. No more Jewish people. It's interesting to me, isn't it? The hatred that has existed towards God's people in history. I mean, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Since the birth of the nation of Israel, there has been people that have tried and tried and tried to wipe Israel off the face of the earth over and over. They are one of the only nations that has ever been removed from their homeland so many times and yet, and yet are back there again. Okay, so many people have so much hatred for God's people. Why? Well, Ephesians says that if you're not in the kingdom of God, that you're in the kingdom of Satan, that you are following the course of this world and you're following the prince of the power of the air. So if you're not in God's kingdom, you're in Satan's kingdom, okay, first of all. And if you're in Satan's kingdom, you hate what Satan hates. And Satan hates God, and he hates God's people. He hates you. He hates you, and he hates me. He wants to see us destroyed, just like Haman wants to see every Jew destroyed. Jesus said they hate you because they hate me. They crucified me, so they'll come after you. Just like Haman hated all of the Jews because of Mordecai, People hate all of God's people because of Jesus. They hated him first, and they hate Christians, they hate Jews now. I mean, there are, there's Iran that would just completely wipe Israel off the face of the earth if they could. They absolutely hate Israel. They hate them. There's no other way to explain this. Even 1,600 years ago, or 2,600 years ago, I'm sorry, we saw this same exact thing happening. Satan hates the church. He absolutely hates the church. Now, just to close it up, I'm going to skip some stuff because I went too long. What does all this mean, okay? I mean, what do we do with all this? There's two chapters of stories, two chapters of, of drama and, and bachelor scene and uh, just crazy stuff, harem and King Xerxes and marriage and, uh, and battle and Jews being threatened to be killed and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, what do we do with this? How does this apply? Um, what, what do we do about this? Well, first of all, let's look at our characters, okay? Because we met, we met our characters today. Okay, we have Mordecai, remember him, who seemingly has no faith. He seems to have no relationship with God. Uh, for some reason, he re refuses to respect Haman, and he endangers the entire Jewish people because of it, refusing to bow to him. We have Haman, who is an Agag guide, a moral enemy of the Jews, who wants to wipe every Jew off the face of the planet just because he's mad at Mordecai for wounding his pride. Then we have Xerxes. He's awesome, right? Uh, we love him, who is depressed for losing a war because he's arrogant and thinks he's God and decides to get a new wife by sleeping with hundreds of concubines. Uh, we got that guy. What do we do with him? And then we have Esther. Okay, we have the star of the book, Esther, surely she's the star, right? Surely she's the one that we can learn from. No joke, I googled like Esther uh, sermons today just to see what the general titles, there's like hundreds of six things to learn from how awesome Esther is and, and, and five leadership principles from Esther and I'm like, where are you getting these things? You know, I mean, she did some cool stuff down the road, don't let me pop your Esther bubble, but seriously, like, is this what we can do? Can we look at the story and say, oh cool, let's do all the things Esther did? No, absolutely not. She's not the, store of our, the star of our story. She's living a double life. She doesn't show any passion for God, any resolve, any moral uh, sort of conviction about what's going on. She's trying to please this pagan king so she can marry him. 
Um, she seems to just kind of be going along with the flow with no backbone. She's not standing up for herself. She's not choosing to do what's right or, or, or anything like that. She's just kind of like there. She's kind of in the story. There's nothing about her that shows a godly woman. So really, there's no character in this story so far that we can look at and say, let's be like them. Okay, this is just not, there's nothing there. So what do we do with that? So questions like, who are we in this story? I don't want to be any of them. Okay, uh, wh- where is God in this story? Well, he's not mentioned at all. Um, is anyone in this story godly? No, not really at all. Is Esther godly? I don't think so. <laughs> so what do we do with it? I mean, what do we, I'm scratching my head today, guys. Scratching it, literally. Like, what do I do with this? I mean, God, what are you trying to say? And it kind of hit me. This is the way humanity is. This is the way that we are. Look at the Bible. I just think about the Bible. The Bible is full of screwed up people, jacked people with messed up lives. Look at the first human being, Adam. He screwed it up for everybody. Thanks a lot, dude. We all got to deal with that now. You know what I mean? I mean, we would have done the same thing, right? He represents us. But he tasted the fruit. He didn't leave his wife. He blame shifted. He hid from God. What a stinking loser. Come on, dude. We all do the same things, right? Then you get Noah. Oh, Noah was great. He built a ship. He trusted God. Yeah, and then after he landed, he got drunk on his own wine and passed out naked in front of his kids. Come on, dude. What are you thinking? Then you got Abraham. Oh, Abraham was a stud, man. He was the father of all faith. Was he really? He tried to give up his wife to save his own behind, right? He didn't, he was scared of, uh, 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 of the leadership, so he said, no, take my wife, she's my sister. And he didn't even stand up for his own wife and do what was right in that sense. His son did the same thing. David, David was a stud man after God's own heart, right? He killed somebody and took their wife. Okay, we all know the story. Um, Rahab, yeah, she's in the hall of faith. She was a harlot, okay? Uh, Saul, okay? Saul, not, not, not Paul, Saul, but he was pretty bad too. He killed Christians. But Saul, the king, the first king, was horrible, he was so jealous and so prideful that he tried to kill David to, to like this ridiculous degree. He had all kinds of issues. And the reality is, is that when you look at the scriptures, it's like one big giant book of Esther. It's full of bad people. Because there's no good people in the Bible, is there? None. If there seems to be one besides Jesus, it's just because it didn't record enough of their life. Okay? Just because they happened to leave some things out. There's bad people in the Bible, and then there's Jesus. That's good news. Okay, it's good news because God is sitting back, taking all of these tangled, messy, sticky, horrible, screwed up, jacked up situations, and he's weaving them all together to create the story of redemption. If you don't believe me, read the Bible. If you think anything other than that, you haven't read the Bible. I mean, there's stuff in here that's like, seriously? People are so jacked. We are so messed up. Nothing surprises you. If you read the Bible, nothing should surprise you on the news. Absolutely nothing. It's all been done before. People are bad. People are evil. And God takes that stuff. He takes that excrement that we create, and he makes beautiful things out of it. Vessels of honor out of the garbage that we create, and it's beautiful. There's a story in the Bible of Joseph, right? And Joseph, he, he, he gets caught into this web of people's sin where he gets thrown uh, or sold into slavery and then, and then he gets sold out by Potiphar's wife and she lies and says that he tried to sleep with her and then he gets thrown into prison and just like thing after thing after thing happens to him and finally, after years, he finally gets to a position where he's actually in a position of authority like this dream that he had when he was a kid after so many years and then it all makes sense. His brothers, who sold him into slavery, show up and they're dying, they're starving. They have to have food. And he now has an opportunity to save them, to continue God's kingdom, the people of Israel, through and because of their sin. Think about the cross. God used the most wicked, disgusting, sinful thought that anyone could ever think of, of hanging somebody on a cross by piercing nails through your wrists and your feet so that you can't breathe and you suffocate, sticking a crown of thorns into your face so you're sweating blood, sticking a garment and ripping it off of fresh blood, this disgusting, horrific, uh, just horrible thing called crucifixion. This was like man's best attempt at, at doing the worst possible thing to a human. God used that to save the world. He said, I'm going to take the worst thing you could possibly think of, crucifixion. I'm going to use that to pay for the sin of those that did it. This is how God works. This is the redemptive story of God, of Jesus. 
It's him taking our garbage and making it into beautiful things. And the reality is, this is not just the redemptive story of the Bible. It's not just the redemptive story of Esther. It's the redemptive story of our life. Because when I look at my life, it's screw up after screw up after screw up after screw up, bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and God somehow used all of those things to get me right where he wanted me. And that's exactly how you need to look at your past. Be it divorce, be it abortion, be it sexual sin, be it anger, be it pride, be it things you've said to people, things that you've done, repent of it, be sorry of it, and realize that God is so gracious that he would use those things to get you where you are today. That he is so good that he would use the garbage that we produced to make a beautiful thing that would exalt and glorify his grace and his grace alone. Amen? I mean, that's good news. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean we go do whatever we want, right? Well, God's gonna turn it into good. No. It means that we praise and we give thanks for how he has worked in the things that we have done. And it means that we can rest knowing that God has got us here, not because of anything that we did. In fact, I feel like when I look at my life, I feel like I did everything I possibly could to screw it up. And somehow he used those things to sanctify me and to keep me on this track of sanctification. So let us stand forgiven tonight. And let's remember that. And let's look at the book of Esther and not say, oh, Esther's so great. <clears throat> let's look at it and say, man, Esther needs grace just like I do. Man, Xerxes, what a bum, but dude, I hope he got saved. <laughs> I hope that guy got broken. I hope he realized that he wasn't God. He definitely realized at some point. <laughs> tell you that. I mean, let's look at Mordecai and say, man, that guy, I just hope that he, I just hope that he realized who he was in the Lord. Look at Haman, the Agag guy that wanted to try to kill all the Jews and say, I need grace just like that because I'm just like that guy, man. I'm as bad as they are. I would do the same things. We need Jesus. The Bible is full of bad people and Jesus. That's, that's it. And we can rest in that, all right? Let's all stand. God, we're just thankful tonight. We stand before you uh, unworthy of your grace. We're thankful that we can be forgiven tonight and that we can have assurance of that not because we've earned it, but because before the foundations of the earth, you chose us, you adopted us. And from before we were even born, God, you have been with all wisdom and all prudence abounding towards us with love and mercy. God, with all wisdom and prudence, God, you have been pulling us to yourself and you still are. I thank you, God, that all of us stand here as just kind of a mess but that you sit back and you see what you're weaving and how you're using our own mistakes even to paint a picture of redemption. God, we are so thankful for what you've done for us. Thanks for midweek. Thanks for Wednesday. I love these guys. Thank you, God, for just bringing them with eager hearts to learn and to study. We pray you would continue to speak to us through the book of Esther. And God, we love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.